We're still in Saigon. Shit. Every time I wake up, we're still recording the same episode. Every time I look in the mirror. So you're. <laughs> Did anyone else get drawn into Love is Blind at the beginning of the pandemic? So you're going way niche, way inside <laughs> joke, which again, inside jokes, they're funny for us. This is only a half episode. This is like Lion King one and a half. So, so, uh, so yes. Laura's getting right into it. Uh, welcome to part two of our episode on Heart of Darkness and Apocalypse Now. This is Film is Lit, the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or TV adaptation. My name is Danny. I'm the film expert. My name is Laura, but I've been demoted to non-expert of literature because I made a mistake in the last episode. Hey, everyone makes mistakes. <laughs> everyone has those days because I, I made a mistake in the No Country for Old Men episode and I went back and admitted my mistake. Yeah, I, don't I, I had a, a wrong fact about Roger Deakins and I went back and oh. amended it. So this is well, us amending I'm something. Amending yeah, go ahead. The last episode. So I said for some reason... I got it in my head that the Red Badge of Courage was written by Joseph Conrad. I don't know why I didn't double check that fact. I didn't do anything to to confirm my assumption. But yesterday I was looking at my bookshelf and I saw that book on my shelf. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as, you saw the book you on do. your bookshelf? <laughs> yeah. And I, I was like, hold on a second. That was written by Stephen Crane. And it's, it's yeah, not it's even an American cl- novel. It, like, right. Joseph That's why Conrad I was so isn't American. So when you said know. that, I, I didn't want to say like no. That's not. No, you should have said something. I I, I I should have said something, but I've been wrong. So I mean, you know all about books, and I I know very little. So I don't know why it's completely. I mean, I guess their na- their last names are similar, but they're I I don't know why I had that in my head. I, I mean, don't, kind of similar. I but. don't know. I just I just have to completely throw out what I said. Luckily, <laughs> that fact wasn't the foundation of one of my pieces yes. of analysis. But yeah. but still, I apologize. I'm so wrong about that, and I was chomping at the bit to come back on the air and oh wow oh wow laura you're human <laughs> what a discovery not on this podcast i'm not <laughs> true well, true <laughs> but yeah we had a lot of things to say uh, this episode's a little bit on the shorter side because we said the bulk of our information in uh, the previous episode please check that out but yeah yeah we decided to do a part two because here i'll say this you're normally very critical of this podcast and of your own work. And I'm always yeah. telling you, just take a breather. We're doing great. We literally do a podcast a week, which, I mean, I read like half the books. You read all of them. Reading a book a week and watching a movie, this is a, a tough, that's a tough schedule to make. What but if we, I was just lying to you about the books? I mean, <laughs> hey, maybe. Really I mean, Sparknotes works no, fine. I, I am. But this is a tough, rigorous schedule that we have going on. So I always am more forgiving of maybe flaws or misinformation that we put in the podcast just because we, we do a lot. And I'll pat ourselves on the back for that. That being said, 
this is the first time, and probably only time, where I'll admit that an episode of ours is not great. And listening to the Apocalypse Now episode, because we oh, are just really? we are just rushing to jam information yeah. in. Yeah. It's set, listening to it. We sound like we had just snorted Adderall. <laughs> we we're just like going at a rapid pace, and we I feel like I couldn't put sentences together. So that's so funny because I edited that episode. And I was so rushed to edit it because we had to get it out the next day that I didn't even notice. I, th- I like was I, maybe I was just barely listening while I was editing to the so the, the content, mm-hmm. but I didn't notice that. But right, it wasn't terrible by any means, but I can imagine. I mean, we both love the movie so much; it makes so, sense. Right. So in the future, lesson learned: maybe we'll do two-parter episodes like this, and not yeah. try to jam everything into one episode. Also, I've said this before, but hey, if we don't make the again, we do this every week. It's a tough, tough schedule. So hey, if we miss a Tuesday. We're human, all right? Don't yell at me. Yell at Laura. Uh, <laughs> so she learned. You have to learn that she puts so much pressure on herself. Oh, got to get it out every Tuesday. I'm just like, come on, let's relax. Chill yeah, out. That's how I am in general. Sorry about that. I mean, we live in California. There's a dispensary down the street. You should I don't let so. loose. I don't either, Mom. <laughs> all right. So anyways, getting back. It sounded like I was being sarcastic. <laughs> I mean, maybe you are. Maybe you're just a huge pothead. It makes me sick. It makes me ill, but ill, my vice like, is wine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Boy. Boys. Uh, mine too. I'm not a lush, but I mean. I-, I would say I am. Get a couple glasses of Pinot Gris in me. <laughs> Pinot Gris. I'm the life of the party, but I also will throw up in <laughs> one of your house plants. Uh, well, welcome. We're never going to be invited to a party after the pandemic if you say that. I mean, let's be honest, we weren't before. <laughs> but welcome to episode two. Okay, so we're covering Heart of Darkness, Joseph Conrad's writer of Red Badge of Courage. <laughs> no, um, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, and then the loose adaptation, Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, released in 1979. Again, this is part two, so we- we've said most of what we wanted to say in the previous episode, but we have a few things that we wanted to cover. So, Laura, just go at it. Okay, well, first of all, I think that I realized while editing, I didn't clarify my message enough about how I'm anti-war, but I'm not necessarily anti-veteran. I don't know if that sort of came out in what I was saying. I just wanted to clarify that I don't blame people who were sent over there without their consent. Right. I think that even if they didn't go consensually, they were forced to do really horrific things because of what war does to people. Oh, this is, yeah, and I think that's right? exactly what Coppola was trying to say. Right. The only person who he's out and right pointing a finger at is probably Lieutenant Kilgore. Yeah. Like, that person is evil, but I don't think he's making a statement about all generals. I think he's saying, hey, some men take advantage of the situation right. and through their toxic masculinity, become these cocky warlords who murder at whim. But most of the other soldiers in the movie are clearly deeply affected by the war 
and yeah. they're more just reacting to it as right. opposed to making conscious decisions to be corrupt. Yeah, well, one of the most tragic scenes is when the gunman, Clean, who looks to be about 17. I mean, he's probably a little bit older than that, but honestly, he looks like a kid. Well, Lawrence Fishburne was 15 when oh, he, he filmed. It was one of his first roles, and he had lied about his age. He had said well, there you go. he was cast when he was 14. Wow. And when they started filming, he was 15. Amazing. And by the time they're done filming, he was 16, I think, going on 17. Well, he but, looks yeah. so young. Right. And that is honestly one of the most tragic scenes in the movie when he's killed and the tape of his mom is playing. Of saying, saying and be safe. And we just home. got you a car and, you know, yeah. we like, can't we just... Like, that is so tragic. And, of course, he's not an evil character, but he murders people because he gets scared yeah. in situations. Like, I'm not saying that he's an evil person. I'm saying that he was a kid that was thrown into... A very tense situation. Another thing that's really indicative of the tension in this movie, something that I think could have been a piece of the movie that could have gone on for way too long, but I think it's actually really important to be in there, is when Willard and Chef are attacked by that tiger. Mm -hmm. And it's like one of those things that's really small and it's short, but it really does exemplify how much pressure these people are under. Like, Chef literally has a mental breakdown when he gets into the boat. Like, he's yelling, he's, like, ripping his clothes off, he's screaming, he's crying. And, of course, I mean, it would be terrifying if a tiger started coming at you, but I think it's more symbolic. Like, we never see the tiger. It's more symbolic, or maybe we do, but it's more right. symbolic of, like, everything that they're dealing with is coming at them so unexpectedly and so intensely that a little thing like going to find some mangoes on shore turns into this breakdown. Right. right? And yeah, the, you briefly see the shot of a tiger lunging. Fun fact, that was a real tiger. They brought in this trainer. <laughs> and this is in uh, Hearts of Darkness, the documentary. But so a trainer, the guy who owned the tiger, and half of his face was scarred from a past tiger attack. Oh so they had the real actors, Martin Sheen and Frederick Forrest, who plays Chef. They were really there, really in front of a tiger. And in order to get the shot to make it look authentic and real, they had the tiger unchained for a bit and lunged. And then right before the tiger would get in front of these actors, the yeah. trainer would step in front and like yell and be like, ah, it, it, it's insane. Like that, that stunt would never be tried. In modern times, well, it would just be like they would CGI it. But the fact that it's a real tiger, they shot it for real in the jungle, just really, really brings out the authenticity. And what first it seems comical with Chef's breakdown and him hooting and hollering, it then turns very tragic as it continues. And, re and you realize this man is forever scarred by a war filled with these type of moments whether well, forever until he's beheaded right <laughs> yes Un unfortunately yes. which is also like it's so very sad. shocking i so, i forgot about that too and that genuinely shocked me yeah. but chef is this whole experience as you realize what 
he seems kind of a wacky character at first and a little annoying to be honest but then over time he becomes one of the most emblematic characters of I guess PTSD. PTSD yeah and since they're still in Vietnam it's like immediate PTSD it's not yeah. something that comes later because he, he never went home because yeah. he died but yeah that that's how affecting and messed up the war was yeah well hey going back to big cats and speaking of early covid entertainment oh tiger we king from tiger king carol that baskin is, that yeah. bitch, <laughs> that bitch. <laughs> <laughs> we learned that it is unethical to keep large cats in any capacity for personal pets or entertainment value mm-hmm. so yeah don't keep large cats around they'll kill you I almost <laughs> killed Martin Sheen on set. Oh, but yeah, that's something. Let's go to the book. I really wanted to the cover... The novella. I'm sorry. No, <laughs> you told me that last time and I still haven't retained it yet. No, it's important to know the difference. So the novella, I should say, Heart of Darkness. I really didn't like it because you had mentioned off air that Marlowe was an unreliable narrator. And that really it boils down to it where i i just didn't really care what he was saying Mm. and the whole structure of the novel doesn't really make sense to me because he's talking to men on a boat marlo but it's a very unconventional structure right he's talking for so long and even in that type of situation i feel like there'd be more times where the other passengers would interject and talk I feel like starting the novella, I thought it would be more of a conversation between these men. Yeah. But it's really just Marlo talking and talking and talking. And honestly, you know what it reminded me of? Hmm. Minnie in Rosemary's Baby. Of her just coming in and talking and talking and talking. And listen, I know he's narrating a story, but the writing was a little pompous to me. And maybe that's because... That's what writing sounded like in that time. But yeah, I just don't connect with Marlowe. I can see him because the novel has been accused of being racist in the past. And I actually have an opinion that Joseph Conrad is condemning everyone. I I, I think Mm -hmm. no one in this novel comes out looking good, whether it be the natives or the uh, colonizers. But the character of Marlowe is supposed to be slightly racist and that's supposed to be the point, but mm. I still don't like having someone racist be our narrator. Yeah. And it's not like I'm, I, I can't take flawed main characters or anything mm. like that. It's just Marlowe himself felt so pompous to me that I, I didn't really care to look into the unreliable yeah. aspect of his character. I know you had wanted to mention something about that. Yeah, it's difficult. I think... The reason that there are sort of two narrators, there's the listener Mm -hmm. who frames this story Mm -hmm. and then Marlowe who's telling it. The whole idea behind that is because I think Conrad was going for this retrospective layering, if that makes sense, because not only is Marlowe remembering, the listener is also remembering that story being told. I see. So it's sort of like layers of obscurity and that's the effect that Conrad was going for. It just adds another layer, right? Sure. And I wanted to actually say, I think the only people that Conrad isn't condemning are the cannibals that he refers to, because 
the whole idea behind their characters and they, for context, they accompany Marlo's boat. They're sort of the crew that accompany Marlo's boat into the Congo. Mm -hmm. And he continuously refers to the fact that they could have killed his whole crew and eaten them at any point during the journey, but they don't. They Mm -hmm. show the self-restraint that he's sort of blown away by. And I think that their characters are supposed to demonstrate that everything that people think is wild and brutal and uncivilized about those people is just like the narrative they're telling themselves to excuse their own behavior. Right. So that group is the only group that gets away unscathed, I think. But I think you're totally right as well. It is difficult to relate to a narrator that you don't quite know if he's also perpetuating the lies because in the end he turns out to be a liar. Marlo makes the decision to continue the lies coming out of the Congo by telling Kurtz's wife that his last words were her name rather than the horror, the horror. So I understand, you know, it's not the most accessible narrator mm-hmm. <laughs> to to read and also like i was saying before i think in the last episode and this episode too we've already mentioned how obscure everything is supposed to be and how you're supposed to understand these things by analyzing them yourself you're, you're not told really anything yeah straightforwardly mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah it's it's difficult i can understand how a lot of people don't enjoy reading this style it's understandable <laughs> But you have a character in Apocalypse Now, like Willard, who you more or less care for in the first half. You Mm -hmm. see him as this PTSD-riddled shell of a man, very stoic. And then that halfway point comes, and then he murders the woman, which I argued last episode that despite it being a heinous act, he tried to prevent Mm -hmm. in the first place. And then one from that moment on, you realize, oh, he is, he is not even good or evil. He is just empty. Chaotic and he, neutral. Yeah. He, he has this mission, and he is the embodiment of the mission. Mm-hmm. Whereas Marlowe is just, he, he keeps that, Conrad writes him in that pompous language, yeah. talking throughout the whole time. And I really never saw... A change in him mm-hmm. because well didn't he give Kurtz's papers to yeah. a new so in a sense even though he lied to Kurtz's wife maybe she eventually came put two and two together about how Kurtz was kind of a, a twisted man I don't think so because remember the report that he writes kill all the brutes mm-hmm. in he doesn't give that to her does he give that to the reporter I don't think so. Right. Well, this is now a good question. What do you think Willard does with Kurtz's writing in the movie of him, what is it, drop the bomb on or exterminate them all? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think he does with that? That's such a good question. Or let's just, you know, more broadly, what do you think happens at the end? I think the last episode, I I think I said he goes crazy. Did I? He kind of like loses it on the way out. I think so. I think I might have said that, but I take that back. I don't think that happens. I kind of feel like he's just so emotionally shut down. Like he's so traumatized. Basically all of his team has been killed. 
if not in front of him, off screen, and then their head was put in his lap. <laughs> yeah, ex- except for Lance. Uh, except for Lance, yeah. which is interesting too. That's kind of an interesting question about why Lance survives out of all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps he's the most innocent. Yeah. But I don't know. It's just really hard. Like, he's so emotionally empty, I feel like, at this point. I feel like he might just... Do you think he commits suicide? Well, do you think, I've, like... uh, I thought about this. I have a kind of a morbid answer. So I think both Willard and Lance make it back to an army base with their boat. But I think Willard stays in Vietnam until the very end because mm-hmm. as... He mentions in the opening he's already done a couple tours and he's back because yeah. that's all he knows now. Yeah, he can't function in Normal. American society yeah. at home anymore. But I also so here's where my the morbidity is that a word? Yeah. Morbidity yeah. <laughs> comes into play. So I think Lance goes home right away, but he is so lost from his experience that he commits suicide mm-hmm. because he there's just no coming back from that. Yeah. darkness now willard he probably stays to the very end and when he's sent home and can't go back yeah then i think he also commits suicide yeah. i mean that's really it's left up to your interpretation but i just don't see how these men can really do anything yeah after this yeah i totally agree but yeah there is still some humanity in willard at the end because he decides to take lance out of it to mm-hmm. extract him from the situation. And I, every time I watch it, I forget that that's the last thing he does. Mm-hmm. And it kind of feels, it feels like he would just leave him there because he's done with his mission, but he decides to get Lance. So perhaps there's something in him that keeps him going, but it's so far gone that pro- when he's alone from Lance and out of the war, I think. It, yeah. Things... Yeah, it's interesting that he becomes almost centered while he's in that situation. Because when we meet him in the hotel room in Saigon, he's drinking, he's on drugs, he's not stable. But when he's pulled in, as soon as he gets into his uniform and he goes to that lunch, he is composed, he clearly understands the double entendres that are going on in the conversation he's having between the colonel and the mission people. I don't know the military very well, but he understands what's going on. When they ask him like to like eliminate Kurtz, he's like, oh, yeah. gotcha, right? With extreme like, prejudice. Right, and if anybody hears about this mission, it doesn't exist. You know, yeah. like he gets that stuff. And he never is really phased by what's going on throughout the movie. He knows that it's craziness outside of himself, but inside we have this inner dialogue that's very confident and he seems to know what he's doing. He has this like inner peace about it. So it's like as soon as he has a mission that he can use to direct himself, then he's okay, which I think sort of goes back to that conversation about the hollow man there's nothing in him that he can sort of self-inspire. He has to sort of get it from the outside, from external sources. And I think that's like really where he, yeah, I can see him committing suicide if he didn't have that. Unless he got mental health help, which is hopefully what he did. And hopefully what other people do if they come back traumatized from a situation like that. Well, it's certainly more normal in modern times. But at that that time, like 
for example, people in my family obviously know, but my dad's father, my grandpa Bob, went to Vietnam and he was a surgeon. And I certainly never heard him talk about his experiences yeah. when I was growing up. But after he had died, we were going through a lot of old files and personal stuff. And my uncle, I believe, came across these tapes that he sent back, just like we saw in the movie. He would record tapes for my grandma and her seven kids. Or actually, I don't know. She might have had five <laughs> when he was in Vietnam. My dad has a big family. But, you know, they would send tapes back and forth. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting. I'll try. We can try to splice those recordings into this because I yeah. think it's really interesting. It's really great to hear my grandpa's voice. I'll obviously get choked up when I hear him again. But it's so interesting that he seemed so calm in those correspondences like if you hear in his voice he's just like very straightforward it's funny to be honest like yeah. it's it's so dry that it's funny but it's almost sort of the same like he was so straightforward about his experiences and those recordings but after he got home i never heard about his experiences in vietnam yeah i think that's like probably very similar to a lot of other veterans experiences like, they just don't want to talk about it. Sure. Yeah. And here. If we get a hold of them, we'll splice in a clip right now. Happy Tet, everyone. Uh, this is the uh, 30th of uh, January, 1968. Uh, Testing one, two, three. Now, let me give you a little background. Uh, last night, we weren't hit directly by any type of rockets, but they were very close, you know, which is very unusual. And we were called on alert, oh, approximately 5 o'clock in the morning. I don't know, I think it was 4 o'clock. And we sort of went to bunkers, and really no one ever knew quite what to do. Well, <clears throat> this is, uh, you know, beautifully ironic in the view of the thing that uh, today is the first day of truce in uh, Vietnam because of the happy Tet holidays. Well, what I may try to do in this possibly another tape is to bring you some sounds of a base that today, a day after the morning, uh, is now in totally on alert. To the best of my knowledge, the only thing that would happen would be rockets now. I mean, of course, this is means you die if the rocket hits, you know, you're at zero center, but otherwise you duck down low and have a pretty reasonable chance of living. I mean, at the moment, I have to be honest and say that I'm <clears throat> a hell of a lot more scared last night when we didn't know exactly what to do. I'm not even sure that there's any real specific role that uh, <clears throat> I have right now <laughs> either, but uh, chances are I'm going to try to get some sounds of, uh, well, what it's like to be on alert on uh, the 30th of January 1968. Hopefully we'll, we'll get them and in there because they're really interesting yeah. and he did a lot of great work, um, saved a lot of people's lives. He was a neurosurgeon. <laughs> I'm sad I never got to meet yeah. him. He sounds like an incredible man. I So funny. Uh, yeah, He's, no. Yeah. I, yeah, and I see a lot of that composure and that calmness in your dad as well. And your, sure. yeah. uh, your dad's brothers and sisters. I've 
only known them for a short period of time, but I do see that yeah. similar. I mean, <laughs> your dad's dry humor. I know you're listening, Pete. <laughs> I know you're listening. Yeah. Um, One time I remember we were we were eating out with my grandparents and I think like my dad hadn't come along or something. Like maybe it was just my brother, my mom and myself. And I think the uh, waiter came along and said, oh, would you like me to box your food up for you? And my grandpa said yes. And as the waiter was walking away, my mom said, oh, that's nice. We can give the food to Pete or whatever for lunch. <laughs> and he goes, he is a growing boy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like one of my favorite Dead anecdotes. humor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my grandpa was so funny. But he like wouldn't crack a smile or anything. He would just sit there. He is a growing boy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, missy grandpa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, shout out to Bob. Hopefully we can get that recording in and maybe we'll end this episode with another recording yeah. as well. Yeah. But we had talked about Willard for so much and I think he's such a complex character where you can discuss ad nauseum about his thought yeah. about all about him and his thought process. But Marlowe is intentionally a little daft because I think Conrad is making a point that clearly colonialism is so terrible, but mm-hmm. Marlowe isn't really seeing it Mm -hmm. and Conrad is pointing out like how can these men not see that what they're doing is bad and you Mm -hmm. know that's the whole point of colonialism it's like hey it was bad and these men didn't know and they kind of got off on the horror but I didn't see I couldn't really see any shades in Marlowe of any learning Mm -hmm. and again that might have been the point but I'm like that's not compelling to me and at the end when he's lies to Kurtz's wife I'm like okay so he didn't want to hurt her feelings, but yeah, on you know, a symbolic level, it means that he's perpetuating the lies that are coming out of the Congo. But like you said, I think it's a fair criticism that that shows he didn't learn from his experiences. He didn't come back and humanize those people and tell other people, "Hey, this is actually the horror that's going on. We need right. to stop it. We need to do something about it." Sure. So and- yeah, I think it's fair to criticize him for being a an inert character. And, and that's the thing. I really admire and love talking about that theme of what you just said. I think Conrad was successful in that regard. I mean, obviously, it's a cla- it's regarded as a classic. Right. But since Marlowe, more or less, is this novella, mm-hmm. it's all him talking, that's really why I hate it. Because yeah. I just hate yeah. Marlowe. Yeah. So... That, you know, I think I've made my point that I don't like the novella. I think it's interesting, too, that the movie decides not to wrap up with Marlo coming back. Yes. There's not a wrap up scene. And we talked about that being a slightly anticlimactic, but I think it leaves it open because I think actually the end of the novella doesn't fit. I don't like the end of the novella either. Mm -hmm. I think I understand, again, like symbolically, I understand what it's there for. But if it's just going to be there to condemn Marlowe's decision not to change, it just doesn't really do much for me. Yeah. I think it's fairly contrived. Mm -hmm. There's this like sobbing wife and he doesn't know how to emotionally connect with her. So he just sort of says like, they're there and lies to her and leaves. I don't think that's great. There's a lot of problematic things about the novella, and it's been criticized pretty much since it came out. A lot of people supported it, because I think a lot of people do 
recognize what he was trying to do in humanizing those people and educating people in the quote-unquote civilized Western world, and that the materials that were exported are stolen and taken in a very bloody way. Mm -hmm. But something that I wanted to talk about in this little follow-up episode is the criticism that's current about how obviously there is still a lot of racism and problematic views that Joseph Conrad held that seeps into the story. Um, He does use the N-word. He does describe native people of Africa in a very demeaning, degrading way. Even though he shows some kind of empathy for them, it's still, again, through that 19th century haze of racism and sexism there's actually a lot of feminist criticism of this story which is really interesting yeah so i wanted to specifically highlight some criticism because as much as it's important to debate whether conrad went far enough with this novella or not i think it's really important to give credit to some African critics. And when I was reading the criticism about this novel, this one man in particular popped up. His name, I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, so I apologize, but Chinua Achebe, who's a Nigerian novelist, he wrote a lot about Heart of Darkness. And he was very critical of it. He specifically said that the novella is an offensive and deplorable book that dehumanized Africans. He argued that Conrad, quote, blinkered with xenophobia, incorrectly depicted Africa as the antithesis of Europe and civilization, ignoring the artistic accomplishments of the Fang people who lived in the Congo River Basin at the time of the book's publication. So I understand that, and I really want to hear that criticism. Like, even though it's someone criticizing how Western civilization was treating those people, the novella still refers to them in a very barbaric way, right? He's saying these people are uncivilized, but we shouldn't treat them that way. And that wasn't true. Like, they weren't uncivilized. That's just how they were perceived. And I think that's fair. In response to that, there's a novelist named Carol Phillips that in 2003 stated that Echebe is right. To the African reader, the Prince of Conrad's eloquent denunciation of colonialism is the recycling of racist notions of the dark continent and her people. Those of us who are not from Africa may be prepared to pay this price, but this price is far too high for Achebe. And I thought that was a really, really good way of understanding, like, sure, the message is good that colonialism is destructive and traumatic for the people who are being colonized. However, Again, to have something that's written not from the perspective of the people who are being colonized is in itself problematic, right? Because you don't get their perspective. And their perspective is arguably more important (laughs) because they're the ones who are being killed, murdered, and, you know, for capitalism. And I thought that it really put into words really well how I feel about watching the violence against the Vietnamese people in the movie. Because from my perspective, it's so traumatic, but I'm not part of their community. And so, and if if I were Vietnamese watching this movie, I'm not sure that I would get 
the again this is an opinion i i'm not like stating this as fact but as as someone watching you know my community be murdered in such a traumatic violent careless dehumanizing way i'm not sure i would be able to focus on the war is bad message i would be more traumatized by for example the very gruesome scene that the boat comes to when they find kurtz and there are a couple people hanging Mm -hmm. in front of kurtz's complex you know like those images are really really traumatic and so again i just without bringing the perspective of the vietnamese people into that i'm not sure that like as Carol Phillips said, I'm not sure that they would be willing to pay the price of seeing their community be ripped apart just for the message of war is bad. You know what I mean? Like, it's a tough line. It is it is really tough because I, I get the message out of this movie that war is horrible. Yeah. Um, but, but for, you know, a Vietnamese person to see that and those images, I think it would be just a too high a price to, mm-hmm. you know... So anyway, that's sort of the criticism that I wanted to focus on because yeah, I think it's no. really important to talk about. Well said, and I can't comment any further because you said said it all as expertly as you could. Um, I just wanted to say I've been crapping on the no- novella mm-hmm. <laughs> since the last episode, but two of the most striking instances of imagery in Apocalypse Now owe inspiration from Conrad. So Mm -hmm. the first one being the intense fog that the boat gets trapped in, and once they emerge, they get attacked with the spears. Yeah. And the captain of the ship in the novella was a native, but in the movie it was their captain. Mm Mm-hmm. They both get impaled through the heart and slowly die. I mean, what a striking sequence. Truly haunting, and especially in the movie with his wide eyes. And I think it was intentional that he was black as well as Mm -hmm. Lawrence Fishburne because when when Lawrence Fishburne dies first, he takes it the hardest, knowing that you know a young black man from America was taken out so young and was killed. And you know he kind of steers the boat into that situation by egging on the attackers mm-hmm. a bit it, him dying wasn't his fault but that he wasn't par- listening right because yes. Marlo tells him to stop shooting and he doesn't yeah yeah so that whole scene is one of the scariest parts in the movie goes to the book the second scene is upon arriving at kurtz's compound mm-hmm. the wall of severed heads yeah. around there now in yeah. the movie it's more of like heads just scattered about almost like trash and the fun fact about that is that those were actual people so what they did was they would dig shut up yeah so they would dig those actual actors so they would dig holes at first i thought you were gonna say they were actual heads oh sorry I'm so no glad you didn't sorry. say that yeah but... i should have I, I but still i mean i could have said that better yeah intense. they were alive people oh my god but they would they the production crew dug holes for oh them and these god. you know the filipino people because right. they were shot in the philippines they would go into the holes and then they buried them and oh that god. so that was, it was a three days they shot the exterior shots of mm-hmm. kurtz's compound and two of those three days it was raining so imagine oh being buried my. up to your neck that's so scary being rained on and the reason it actually took three days to film that scene 
it, it was only supposed to take one. But as we talked about last episode, Marlon Brando was such not only a diva, but he didn't know his lines. Right. And he, he was literally making it up as he was going. And he had negotiated a three-week contract. And if they go over that three weeks, he would be paid a million dollars per week. Are you kidding me? Yeah, that was the contract. And the thing was, Coppola wanted to work with him. And he'd worked with him in The Godfather, so they had this relationship. But... Marlon Brando would keep on talking, like trying to figure out this character and everyone else on the crew would be like, yo, Marlon is trying to get more money. Yeah, yeah. that's what I would think. <laughs> so going back to the imagery, it's so haunting to see mm-hmm. Willard walk up in this kind of like misty, almost ethereal, heaven-like mm-hmm. compound. Mm-hmm. It's all in mist and it, the, it's overcast. Mm-hmm. And you see all these heads just scattered, scattered strewn. strewn about. And then, you know, Dennis Hopper going like, oh, yeah, sometimes he, he goes too far. And you're like, Jesus Christ. But th- that yeah. whole, that striking imagery was directly inspired by Conrad. Yeah. So here, I said something good about the good, novella. Good, yeah. My final fun fact is that the actor Scott Glenn, who played Jack Crawford in Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. He's in this movie. What? Briefly, he plays Colby. The lieutenant who, no yeah, way. who was the first one sent to take out Kurtz, and then who becomes. I would a, not have recognized. So him. the story behind that, he was a real life marine, I believe, and he was cast because they were doing improv during the casting process, uh-huh. and he rolls his eyes, and Coppola goes like, "I saw that, Scott. Like, why are you rolling your eyes? Do you think this material is beneath you? Do you think you're above it all?" And he goes, "No." These characters are floating down a river shouting. If they do that, they'd have a bullet in their laps within a second. Oh, and then yeah. he was cast right on the spot oh, because of that line. That is so interesting. And, but he originally had a much bigger role. Because mm. remember, Colby, I don't think Colby has any lines. If no, I, I think he just stares. He just stares. Yeah. So Scott Glenn had a much bigger role planned, and Coppola wrote it specifically for him. Uh-huh. But what had happened was... During that typhoon I mentioned, the boat that Coppola was on was tied to the dock and it was about to capsize and Scott Glenn came over and cut the rope and that ended up saving Coppola's life. So Coppola said, okay, now I'll write any role that you want for you. Uh And Scott Glenn said, well, I want to be at the end of the movie. I want to act next to Marlon Brando, Dennis Hopper, and Martin Sheen. Okay. And then Coppola said, well, that part's already done. There's nothing really for you. Mm. And then Scott Glenn goes, what about the character of Colby? And Coppola was like, that character has no lines. Mm -hmm. And then Scott Glenn was like, I don't care. Wow. And so Scott Glenn literally sacrificed his much bigger role just to be Colby so he could be in the ending of the movie and meet that's Marlon so interesting, Brando. Because yeah. it's not even directly stated that that's him. Right. You kind of have to do some backward thinking and say, oh, he's wearing a hat that matches what he was in. They showed him pictures yeah. in the beginning. You kind of have to do that. And he has a Colby patch, but, oh, you yeah. know, he's only me- it's mentioned briefly like one line. That is so interesting. And, and Scott- he's wearing camouflage right. makeup so you can't even tell and he has a goatee and he's so young that you just right. don't 
recognize who Scott that is Glenn such is. That's a fun fact. I didn't know that. So yeah, shout out to Scott Glenn. <laughs> uh, wow. Well, I yeah. thought we were only going to record for 30 minutes and we're already yeah. <laughs> up to an hour almost. I, I, I'm all set. That I, ends my fun fact. Yeah, I guess one thing that I didn't think about, I was just looking over my notes. I didn't mention how powerful it is in the novella when Marlo continues to come across these outposts mm-hmm. and there's just waste everywhere. Yeah. And if you can say there's a funny part of this novella, it's when he has to stop and repair his boat because he's supposed to arrive on this outpost and pick up another boat. He gets there and the boat has sunk. Yeah. (laughs) So he has to drag the boat out of the river, fix it, and then move along. And something that I thought was so, again, like, dry, sarcastically funny is that reminded me so much of Catch-22. And I can see where a lot of the absurdism in that book, which, by the way, is one of my absolute favorite novels. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. We're probably going to cover it on the podcast. So if you haven't read it yet, go start now. A little sneak preview. A little sneak preview. But I can understand because there are so many lines where he's literally just waiting for like bolts to be delivered. Yeah. And he was, he's like, I remember walking down this ravine one time and I saw boxes and boxes of bolts that were just dumped out and strewn about. And the symbolism behind that is that there's so much waste because the quote unquote civilization that those people are supposed to be doing, like building buildings and boats and, trains and train tracks that's not happening because that's not the point of why they're there right so it doesn't matter if all of this material that's been shipped in just gets wasted because all they care about really is the ivory so he makes this comment about like there are nails for days but all i need is a handful of bolts and like i remember seeing a bunch dumped out on this ravine one day but i can't get one here to like continue my mission so That reminded me so much of Catch-22, and I really enjoyed how that overlaps, because this isn't necessarily absurdism. It's definitely criticizing the same thing, but Joseph Heller, who wrote Catch-22, is playing on the same things. You know, in war, it doesn't make sense. War doesn't make sense, because the more, for the most part, the morality that people assign to the fighting is not real. It's just sort of a cover for violence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to mention that we haven't touched on is Harrison Ford. Oh, yeah. We didn't talk about him in the first episode, and he's in the very beginning, and he looks good. A in little a young, fresh-faced Harrison Ford just <laughs> coming hot off A New Hope, or I guess Star Wars. Yeah, but, he's yeah. so good in this. His micro-acting, I guess, like his hands, what he does with his hands and how he talks is just brilliant. He His small, tiny performance in this movie are so unforgettable to me. He does such a great job. So that's just the last thing. I think I've already told people that I saw him one time in the Palisades, but I want to brag about it again because it was one of the greatest days ever. (laughs) I met Meryl Streep. All right. Oh my God. Uh, Well, thank you for listening. That concludes our coverage of Apocalypse Now. Uh, One of the best war movies ever made. One of the best movies ever made, period. Yeah. Join us next week when we cover Ad Astra, the 2019 Brad Pitt movie, which is a loose adaptation of Heart of Darkness and basically Apocalypse Now in space. Yeah. So 
that's gonna be fun. Yeah, and then the week after that will be East of Eden, and then after Ooh. that is our, that, that's gonna be our Scheduled season. break. Yeah, such break, and I'm gonna try to convince Laura to make it longer than one week. Let's, fingers crossed. We'll <laughs> see. All right, and uh, to all our veterans out there, thank you for your service. Mm -hmm. um, it's an honor if you're listening to this. Shout out to my late grandfathers, Quentin Peacock and Dick Gaylord. They're both veterans as well. Same uh, with my uh, my other late grandfather, yeah. Benjamin Dove, who served in World War II. Yeah, so shout out to them, great men and extremely missed. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, that about does it. Peace. Here I think are some more sounds of phantoms leaving against the background of the Beatles. Well, against this background of uh, nonsense, let me give you the, so far the best Beaumont of the night. Uh, someone called our coach and was asking whether it was security, and uh, Dr. Fasini asked, uh, no, it's not security, but we're very insecure. Okay, number two, there's been a, a bit of intelligence here <laughs> that's of great interest. There, there's a large ambulance uh, bus type uh, at the outside of the nurse's dormitory, which is going to uh, transport them to uh, the seventh ward of the hospital where they will be, you know, totally safe from all problems. Well, the night of sage continues, and obviously, and uh, someone who can speak in this kind of a tone, obviously nothing's ever really happened yet tonight. Uh, someone would say this is uh, overtly uh, too fresh or too pushy. Let me remind you, you know, that there's probably a one in 50 chance that more I could be killed tonight. You know, it's as simple as that. Once again, you hear the uh, sounds of F-4s taking off, or as I say, lacerating the air. See, uh, I'm very impressed with John's helicopters that he drew for me, because I quite honestly, as I said in the letter, I couldn't draw them as well as he could. And he must have had something to look at them, because they really, really number one. And did he really uh, write that whole uh, goddamn letter that he sent to me? I mean, it, it, I just... I thought it didn't really look like your handwriting, and I, I'm very interested in that. Of course, Mark, uh, here in the background, and your recordings all the time, and kiss my sweetest, beautiful daughter. She couldn't possibly be getting any more beautiful, could she? And Peter, uh, how many freckles do you have today? Oh, uh, in reference to John Engelbert.